So I have in my hand a book, a collection of writings. Um, some people use it for self-help, some for spiritual truths, uh, salvation of our souls, uh, maybe some wisdom. Um, there's honestly kind of some weird passages in here that are kind of hard to understand and it's unrelatable to a lot. Um, this book, the Holy Bible, the Word of God, scriptures, um, so many words, so many ways to view this. But what if I was to tell you this story about a, a gentleman, his name is Leslie Newbegin. He spent about 40 years doing mission work in India. And during that time, he would sit and he would learn from uh, Hindu priests, people that practice other religions to understand, what do you believe? And one of these Hindu priests told Leslie, he said, this book, this holy Bible, is not just another religious book. It is the true story of the world. It is a cosmic narrative that tells us that the only reality is one that starts with God as creator, choosing people to be his outlet, to be his image, watching them be infiltrated and destroyed by sin, seeing them stumble and fail, and then we see this God faithful to these people to see them try to lead them to his story of redemption. We see in the middle of the story, this guy named Jesus comes on the scene, and then we, we fast forward to the end, the book of Revelation, a hope telling us where does the, the reality of this world go to? A kingdom of God. So we have this huge grand narrative in this book. And it's not just another religious book, but it literally is what is true reality. And honestly, that's a huge claim because that means all of the religions, all their beliefs, all their allegiances other than to Jesus, the king, the, the man who walked about 2,000 years ago are false and that there's only one true reality. It's pretty absurd when you think about it, honestly, if we were to ask ourselves and be like, is that really true? Is, can we really make such a bold claim? What I want to say is, what if we had a witness? What if we had evidence, an account of people who saw Jesus, who knew Jesus, he talked with him? Let me tell you the story of this guy named John. John, he was the son of a fisherman. His brother fished with him. He was probably like a teenager, maybe 14, 15. He's fishing with his brother, his dad, and probably other helpers. And this man, Jesus says, hey, come, come follow me. John and his brother James get out of the boat and they follow Jesus. This is life-changing for John. John wasn't chosen. He wasn't really remarkable. Honestly, he's probably a loudmouth because his nickname with his brother was the Sons of Thunder. So I'm imagining they probably were quite rambunctious and annoying and sometimes. Um, but you have, so he chooses to follow Jesus and his life is changed forever. He starts seeing blind people receive sight. He sees thousands of people be fed from a meager ration of fish and bread. He sees paralyzed people leap up and walk who've never been able to walk their entire lives. He sees the most amazing things happen that he can't really rationalize. And as his life goes on, it comes at a great cost. He sees his best friend, this guy Jesus, whom he walked with, he lived with, they ate together, 
They camped out. They journeyed. They lived life for three years, day in and day out. He saw him. He was in the crowd when he cried out to his father. When he saw the Roman spear pierce Jesus' side, he was there. When Jesus raised from the dead, he was there. He touched him. He embraced him. He ate breakfast with Jesus as a resurrected person with holes in his hands, a scar, a scab. He, he literally interacted with this Jesus. So we have the most climactic moment in all of human history and all the history of the earth is this time when Jesus, these Christ events, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And we have a firsthand account from this guy named John. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you. We thank you for your reality, for the truth that you've made yourself known to people, Lord God. We thank you for your patience, your endurance, and you've made a way through Jesus Christ, your son, Lord God, for us to be full, to be complete, to live for you and for your kingdom, Lord God. And we thank you that we have an account of John. We have someone who who saw you weep, Lord. We thank you that we can base our faith and we can rely on his testimony, Lord God. We thank you that your presence in the Holy Spirit is here with us today, Lord God. You're shaping, you're forming us. Lord God, I lift up the, the Northern Arizona Council of Churches this morning, Lord. I thank you for their commitment and their work at Unity in Northern Arizona to be a body of Christ in different denominations, different gatherings, but choosing to be together for the sake of Flagstaff and the sake of your kingdom, Lord God. God, we thank you that we get to do ministry. We get to follow you with other churches in Flagstaff. Lord God, we pray that you'd strengthen our bond together, that you'd bring us together as a, more and more as a community so we can love the city of Flagstaff, so we can be a, a witness to your kingdom, to your true reality, Lord God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My name is Kyle. I'm the pastor of community and care here. Good morning. Welcome. Anthony, thank and praise the Lord, gets to take a vacation. So he's been off for a week with his family enjoying. So I get to be running the Sunday. So it's kind of like the substitute teacher in the room. So I hope you all behave or else I have to tell Anthony, be like, man, everyone was so bad this morning. I can't believe it. No. Um, but we're starting a new series, First John. And we're working into First John, and so I get to introduce this series and kick us off. And it's been really such a, honestly, a privilege, a blessing to study First John and understand who is this guy? Who was this person who really lived at the time of Jesus, paid a huge cost to follow and practice the ways of Jesus, and then gave us a letter? And it's not just a letter of doctrine or theology, but this letter he gave as someone who cared for these people, cared for the, the Christians, the people trying to follow Jesus. So he writes very pastorally, very shepherdly. And so let's dig into this right now, um, starting with 1 John 1, 1 through 4. He says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. 
What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you, so that you may also fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You see, the first thing John says when he opens this letter, we have heard, well, second thing, from the beginning, he talks about who Jesus was into the creation account, into his letters as the, as the book of John, the fourth gospel of John. Well, he was from the beginning. But then he goes in to say, and this I think is, is so important that we grasp this understanding and, and what he says here is he says, we have heard, we have seen with our eyes what we have observed and have touched with our hands. So what John is saying is he's not saying, hey, here's this idea, here's this theology, hey, believe in this. He's saying, no, I touched Jesus' hands. I embraced him in, in, in Jewish culture when they'd feast. They, you'd recline at the tables because there's probably like six to eight inches off the ground and he would lay back against Jesus as they're feasting. He would, um, like we were saying, after Jesus' resurrection, he ate with them. He literally probably hugged him because he, he raised from the dead and he was his best friend. When Jesus wept, he was there to see his tears. He heard him cry. When Jesus went up onto the mountain, was transfigured in this crazy um, situation, and Moses and Elias shows up, John was there. He saw this. He fell to his knees. What, what he's giving us here is an embodied testimony, an actual firsthand account of saying, hey, we saw this, we heard this, we observed this, and not just we saw this with our eyes observed, but we saw the true Messiah, the King, this, this reality that the kingdom of heaven has come on earth in Jesus. We believe and we've seen this. So now believe me, take this account. Believe in who Jesus is. And this is huge. And, and it's so important that we have an account like this. But honestly, and I would imagine if we had like a real heart-to-heart and we had coffee and talked about it, I, w- I would honestly confess, be like, it's a little hard to believe with all the relativity of truth, like, oh, your truth is your truth. Oh, that's cool. I love that for you, but that's really not real for me. In a world where relativity is huge, to make such a truth statement that God is true and there's only one true reality is absurd. But yet we have this account. And let me give you this illustration and understanding of why some of this account and why we can't receive truth as well. If you look at the past 500 years or so, we have this shift Um, We refer to it as humanism and enlightenment is the philosophy that kind of kicked off. And because of this, this, in this 500 years, we've seen a gradual shift of people being like, we don't need this God. We don't need God. We don't need spirituality. We need to depend on ourselves. We need to depend on higher learning, higher education, Truth, uh, truth comes through data. It comes from observable, repeatable, scientific fact. So if you'd imagine an air filter, right? You put an air filter up and you push and you move air through it. And what happens with the air filter is any particulate that you don't want 
in the room or in that space, it gets caught. So you could have just one that catches dust. You could have one for pollen, one for mites, one for allergens, whatever. Go to Home Depot and look at all the different air filters they have. I'm, I'm sure you can understand an air filter, right? So as, as you're passing this air through, the purpose of it is to catch this stuff and then air, clean air is coming out. So this enlightenment idea, if you can imagine this filter put into our minds, it's, it's built into our education, our theories, our practices, it filters out truth. So truth only passes through these filters if it's scientifically based, if maybe you've sourced and cited your resource, if you could repeat that, if I could observe it, if it is, is quantifiable data, it becomes truth. And what we have in the scriptures and we have in the Bible and we have the people of God is it, we, can't, we can't relegate it to and repeat some of this stuff. So we, what happens is this filter, this account, this absurdity of what John is saying of like, this person raised from the dead hits this filter and it gets caught there and then it gets dismissed. And it's, it's just a belief. It's just an opinion. It's not truth. It's not, it's not reproducible, it's not data. So this, this filter, this truth filter, is, is a huge thing that has, over time, and, and as we've built our, a lot of systems around it, it's diminished faith, and it's diminished this idea that the reality of God is just this personal belief. And so one of my prayers that I've been prepping is that we can recognize that we can truly stand on the mysterious workings of God and his Holy Spirit. We don't know, I don't know how that all works, but I believe in the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, even though if I kind of struggle a little bit with that. And let me bring you to another story. And, and if so, if you're wondering, you're like, well, what do we do? How do we handle this? And let's go back to another account of Jesus. So I, I mentioned before, um, John, he's up on this mountain. There's this crazy experience he has. He sees Jesus transfigured. As they're coming down from that, there's a crowd of people gathered. In the center of this crowd is this father. And this father's distraught. He's stressed. He's anguished. And Jesus approaches and he says, what's going on? And the father tells his story. He says, my son, my son is caught by a demon and this demon captures him and he seizes him, he convulses him and he falls into fire, he falls into water. Please help me. And Jesus responds to this father. He says, if you believe, all things are possible. The father says, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. He says, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. And so that's where we see, we see this, this person, this father, he's imagined his life. He's been devoted to his son who is literally at any time can just be cast down and, and perish and die. He's constantly attending to him for his whole life. And so the stress, the anxiety built up, I imagine and it doesn't mention uh, this, the son's mother. So we don't know, maybe she's around, maybe she's not, but like, this guy is so bold. He's like, hey, I just need help. I believe. Jesus had been doing all these amazing works. It's crazy. It's radical. He's like, I believe. 
but help me with my unbelief. Even those people that saw these workings couldn't quite understand the reality and truth of Jesus. And so that's the first thing we look at, how, how if, we, if we're put up against, we have this faith filter that says this stuff is just an opinion or a belief and it's privatized religion. How do we combat it? We come to this Lord, King Jesus, the light, who was from the beginning. He is the word of life. We come to him and we say, we believe in you. Help us with our unbelief. It is, it's a posture of humility. It's a posture of we depend on you, not ourselves, but help us with our unbelief. All right, let's continue on into 1 John. Um, as we look at 1 John 5 through 10, I just want to point out before we get into it, John now is going to address three, three groups of people that were existing at that time that were causing some division and anxiety in the church, these communities. And we're going to look at those people as we move on. Um, so this is what John says. So again, we have a first eyewitness account. And then he says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. And there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. Group, group number one. These are people who say, I believe in Jesus. Yes, he's real. He's the Messiah. He's the king. Yeah, I'm Christian. I believe in Jesus. They make this claim. They say it's a belief. But when you look at their life, or when John would look at these people's life, there is no, no change. You see habitual patterns of sin. You see no actual transformation. Nothing actually showing. They're not living for this Jesus. They just claim. They say, hey, yeah, we believe in Jesus, of course. Yeah, this sounds like a great religion. It's for me. I'll take it on. But nothing happens. And so we see that, I mean, and this is still common for us today, is like we, so many Christians are like, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, I went to church on Easter. That was great. It was an amazing service. Oh, I actually go on Jesus' birthday, Christmas, you know? Yeah, that's really cool. I love the trees. I love the decorations. And there's some of these people who are like, oh yeah, I go to church. I go to church one Sunday a month. It's really great. One, maybe twice, we'll see. But then in the week, like you couldn't even tell the people, there's no transformation, there's no patterns, there's no choices to submit, to be in allegiance to Jesus. It's just, I do believe in him. But there's no, we don't see any pattern um, of following Jesus. Because when you look and you look at the accounts of people, when they followed Jesus, it was, there was a lot of things happening that changed their lives. You know, they would talk to people, they'd feed people, they'd do miracles, they would pray. It, they literally journeyed and gave up their lives. Like John, it was a costly journey. John's life to follow Jesus, he was the last of the apostles left. His brother, James, you know what he saw? James was beheaded. He was decapitated for following Jesus. And John lived on. All the people John was close to for those three years, one by one, they were martyred, they were murdered, but they lived on for Jesus. So there's this, the reality of who Jesus is led these people to live a life so committed 
at an intense cost to them. Yeah, it's intense. So let me, let's keep going on a little bit. So let's see. The second group of people John addresses here. He says, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And I'm going to skip to verse 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we see this second group of people. We see them and they are, there are people who are like, we believe in Jesus. We believe he is literally what is referred to as the light come to the world who is God, who's creator from the beginning. We believe in him and we trust in him and we can't help but give our lives to him and, and change what we do and let him change who we are. And you see this, how this represents itself is in here we see this idea of sin. Um, the, the first group was like, we believe in Jesus, but they go on and sin. This second group of people, is say, they say, we confess our sins. We admit we, we fall short. Paul in Romans says, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. So we all fall short. No one's perfect, but it is not to bring shame or guilt like Johnny was saying. We don't confess to feel bad about it. We confess to be like, Lord, we trust you. And when you see this passage, our righteousness comes on and is placed on us by the blood of Jesus. So as, as we come to him and we confess that we struggle, we fall short, then we walk in the light and we're living following Jesus as he was. As he abided in the Father, we now abide in Jesus and in the Father through him. And that enriches and, and, and brings us into this fellowship that's so unique. And, and this was what John's heart was as seeing, he's seeing his community divide over the belief in who Jesus really was people's belief in, in if sin is real or if not. He, he's saying, no, like, let's share in this rich fellowship. Enter it. And that happens through confession. That happens through accepting we have sin and coming into it. And, and this is to address these people is, if God is the light, let us, let us accept him into all areas of our life. I know sometimes it's like, okay, I, I go to church, I'm a Christian, you know, I have a devotional life, I have a Bible study, our family, we pray together, or I pray with my friends, but, you know, I go to work and I, I work in, in the marketplace, you know, so it's like, I can't, I can't really share about Jesus, I can't do this, because that's a different place, and I'm still a Christian here, but like, God doesn't really have a place in here, in this part of my life. And that's what, if this truly is, to John's account, the true story, the, a reality for all things, then yeah, let that light be a part of your school, your, your friend groups, your, your fun, your family, your workplace. And it, it doesn't mean you have to just like talk to Jesus about everybody. It just means you embrace and you let that light into anywhere. You let God be present with you through his spirit and dwelt in us anywhere and everywhere we go. It's, it's all of life. Like we see this phrase in redemption, you see it in the lobby, all of life is all for Jesus. That's a truth. 
And that's what, as we, if we believe we walk in the light, that's how we live. Like all of this light infiltrates all of our life. And so let us not hinder that. Let us confess and let us bring that light into everywhere. As we're moving on, the last group of people we see, group three, it's in two verses um, and kind of splits that confession. So the first verse is 1 John 1.8, it says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we go to number 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So John is addressing this last, this third group of people that say, we're not, we don't sin. We're perfect. We don't believe in sin. It's just, it's not a thing for us. And those people that don't accept and don't believe sin, they're making, like John says, you make him a liar, God a liar, Jesus a liar. It's a huge claim. And honestly, it's, you may be like, yeah, that seems ridiculous. Like, there is no sin. I mean, if we look to the world and we look at the things that happen, so many things in the news media that's negative. There's like murders, there's abuse. We see school shootings, we see racism, we see corruption everywhere. How could we not? What do we think that is? You know, like, sin is so prevalent, it's so pervasive, it's so destructive, it exists. I remember when I was at um, the, the University of Arizona, there was a the guy, his nickname is like the angry preacher. And I would try to chat with him and I'd be like, hey, you know, like, what's your life about? Like, how do you follow Jesus? And he's like, well, in Jesus, I'm perfect now. Like, I've never sinned since I accepted Jesus. As he's holding up signs that say, um, you deserve cancer. Um, this is a little intense statement for the kids, but he, like, he would hold up in front of uh, sororities, like if you wear yoga pants, you deserve to be sexually assaulted. I'm like, dude, that does not sound like love. That sounds like more sinful, bro. Like, I don't, I don't think you have this message. You say you're perfect and you don't have sin. Like, my brother, come to this verse. You're making God a liar if you don't accept sin. And, and there's like also another camp of people we look at is today we have just such a modern spiritual um, age and people are just, they're quite religious in different ways. However, they, they relegate and they're like, yeah, it's sin. It's cool that you have articulated your guilt to be sin so you can deal with this way in a religious way, have freedom. But sin is it's not real. Like it's just what you do for yourself. I don't believe sin exists. And so we speak and we let John's words in the scriptures wash over that and be like, no, sin is real. It's corrupted us. But when we look at what happens when we confess and we center on Christ, is we have the promise, the cleansing of the blood of Jesus and the work of him on the cross and his resurrection is a promise that all sin is dealt with. And so as we fast forward to the end of this cosmic story, we see the freedom of the whole world recreated sin-free. And so that's our hope, and that's what we live for, that's what we look for. And, and we just denounce this belief that there is no sin. If we look back to earlier, some of the Old Testament, back like middle-ish of your Bible, this guy, he was a prophet Isaiah, he says this, 
and he's speaking to a nation, a group of people, and he says, but we have sinned, and you, God, you are angry. How can we be saved if we remain in our sins? All of us have become like something unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like a polluted garment, a filthy rag. Friends, sin is real and it's pervasive. Even what Isaiah was saying is, even if you're such a good person, you know, you recycle, you know, you, you have a low emissions car, you know, you bring your, your like tote bags to the grocery store, you don't pay the 10 cents, now it sprouts. Uh, you know, you compost, you know, I don't know, you donate to, every time now you check out and you round up to donate to some foundation, you're such a good person. And honestly, when you look at the world, I'm like, dude, people are really good now. There's so many nonprofits, there's so many B corporations that care. These are like really good people. But you know what Isaiah says and the word of God says, even these great people who are so good and doing amazing works, their righteousness is like a filthy rag. It still doesn't count up. Again, Paul says, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. So what we need in this is we need Jesus and we need the reality of who he is and what he's done to wash over us, to cleanse us, to bring us into his righteousness. And it doesn't mean we have to be perfect, but it means we have a mediator with God who will stand before us. And so we rely and we come to Christ for that. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that even though we aren't perfect, we don't have it figured out that life is messy, that you made a way. Lord God, we thank you for who you are, for what you've done. We thank you for this account of John. As we dig in, as we go through Sunday after Sunday, his letter to the church, Lord God, would you allow us to take that posture of humility that we believe, Lord. We believe all things are possible in you, but help us with our unbelief. As we fight against the doubts, the skepticisms in our culture, Lord, the fake news, the fake media, whatever it is, as AI generates realistic stuff, Lord God, that it's, we can't even tell, is this real or is this AI, Lord God? We pray that you would be our rock that Jesus Christ, we would stand in you as the cornerstone of our life, as our families, as the center of our hearts, our minds, our bodies, Lord God, would we give ourselves to you? Would you help us trust in you, Lord God? And we ask and we, we pray that your spirit would be present with us, Lord God. We pray this in Jesus' name.